Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, TV, other podcasts. And this week, what would a school administrator do to hide a scandal and protect his district's academic standing? We'll grade bad education from HBO. Then we'll sink our teeth into the first part of Netflix's nine-episode documentary on wrongful convictions, The Innocence Files. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening, Rebecca. Laura, this is the point of the podcast where I pronounce your name correctly Thank before you. I start calling you Laura later. <laughs> it's always at the beginning. I'm always very careful. I'm like, Laura, Laura, Laura. And then later when I listen back, I'm like, Laura, Laura, Laura. So just enjoy it while it's happening, okay? I'll enjoy it because you're the only one who says it correctly. Even the, in my house, they don't say it correctly. So I'll go with it. <laughs> one star review. <laughs> Brian Goulet. <laughs> <laughs> and finally with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our Patreon book club host, and the host of the hit podcast, Strange Arrivals, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, I will tell you, one of my favorite things about tax season is when I have to like file all of your 1099s and I'm reminded that your name is actually... Tobias. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's fantastic. Now, Kevin, uh, before we get into the content portion of our podcast, who is our Patreon, patron saint of the week this week? We have two. It's Kathleen Dolan and Ben Dibble. Really? Why yes. do we have two? Because we got a lot of saints. Okay, we want to pass the goodwill around. <laughs> I love the name Ben Dibble. I love it. It's a good name. Ben's great, and he's a uh, he's a man about town. He's a gentleman. Kevin drinking a <laughs> fine cocktail when I see him. <laughs> Kevin, what do uh, our patrons on Patreon get this week for their fabulous support of our podcast? What are they going to get right now? Well, they're going to get um, they're going to get part two of Laura Bricker's "Leave It to Bricker: Surviving the Apocalypse." Yes, they're also going to get a re uh, issue of a back episode of. Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, where we're going to talk about The Cadaver King 
and the country dentist. Genius. Uh, which ties into our review this week. Mm. Uh, we'll get the after show and a married with podcast. What are we talking about on the after show this week? We're going to talk a little more about one of the central figures from the Innocence Files, uh, Dr. Michael West, mm-hmm. the dentist. Mm. That uh, dentist. That dentist. <laughs> that epithet dentist. I, scare quotes. <laughs> scare quotes. Can I use the epithet in the after show that I can't use in the show? Yeah. I'm going to use it, yeah. And we're also going to be talking about a new project we saw uh, a promo for this week. Looks kind of weird. I just want to get your guys' thoughts on it. A new thing coming out about another suspect in the Heyman Lee case who may not be a suspect. And we're going to talk about how we feel about that, okay, in the after show. Okay. All right. So the people are getting four podcast this week on Patreon, The Book Club, Laura Bricker, Mary Depot, Mary Podcast, and The After Show? Yeah, maybe more. That's a lot. It Plus is a lot. Plus, are getting cocktail parties with Kevin. Cocktail party, after work party. By video. Yeah. Our Patreon is getting pretty content rich. Anyway, thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you want to join the fun and get all the stuff we're making there, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. All right, let's start the show, shall we? We're seeing three bedrooms go for over a million in Rosa Nights. Yeah, you just don't see those kinds of numbers in Syosset or Jericho. Whatever, right, those towns were a further commute from the city. Not Manhasset, not Great Neck. It's the public schools. The better the school system, the higher the price tag on the homes. Yeah. On Sunday night, HBO premiered its new movie, Bad Education. School superintendent Frank Tassone is on top of the world. His Long Island district is ranked fourth in the country and he's beloved by the community for rising property values and Ivy League admissions. But things begin to unravel when a high school journalist is assigned a story about the budget. Well, that's it? No, no follow-ups? No, it's just a puff piece. You save the real stories for seniors. Rachel, it's only a puff piece if you let it be a puff piece. A real journalist can turn any assignment into a story. When an administrator is accused of financial malfeasance, Frank convinces the school board it is in everyone's best interest to keep it under wraps. Once word gets out about Pam, we're we're inviting the Times, Newsday, every other paper in the tri-state area to our front door. With all due respect, screw the papers. This is a very real crime here, a theft of taxpayer money. Judy, you served on the school board for how long? Seven years? Eight, proudly. Okay. And in eight years, how many times has our budget been passed by taxpayers without incident? Eight. So what happens when our next budget goes up for approval in May? The budget that we've worked all year on, the stimulus that gets us the skywalk, that gets us to first. What happens? I get what he's saying. I mean, how's it going to look? But Frank's actual concern is about his own exposure in the scandal and protecting the secret life he has built. Based on an unbelievable true story, Bad Education stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney playing school officials willing to do anything to maintain their quality of life on the backs of taxpayers too complacent to care. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Bad Education. So if you want to remain spoiler free and just get our thumbs up or thumbs down review, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Lara Bricker, Hugh Jackman, one of the most handsome people in the world, is actually super unattractive in this movie. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is too bad because I love him. Oh, my God. But there's some, I mean, just from the behavior, he, he played this role just tremendously. And he really did such a wonderful job with it. But this particular character, the more you get to know him, he's got all these weird little neuroses, like the eye cream and the disgusting shakes that he's drinking. And then, um, you know, having sex with former students, which totally disturbed me. So yeah, he, um, 
not not as handsome when all that comes out. <laughs> Kevin, what do you think of Hugh Jackman's performance in this film? Oh, I thought it was great. I mean, do you remember the teachers who sat with you, who held you by the hand, who who taught you to add no. and subtract, who showed you Gatsby, Salinger for the first time, or Mockingbird even? Yeah. Do they, do their names escape you? Are their faces okay. a blur? Listen. You listen to me. You don't want to see us as people because that is not convenient to you. You just leave us behind at will. Never think about us again. Right? You might forget, but we don't. We never forget. I thought he had a great performance. This was a really interesting character to play. Of course, uh, you don't know how many liberties they take in a you know in a movie adaptation. Of Not a, a lot. Have you ever read any of the stories about this case? Uh, no. I will tell you, the story that this movie is based on is a story by our friend, the incredible reporter Bob Kolker. Also the author of Lost, <laughs> Lost Girls. Girls yeah. Wrote an incredible piece for The New Yorker about this case on which this movie is based. Bob's having a moment. And it really tracks. The movie very closely tracks. There's actually stuff they left out of the movie that was also part of the case. It was unbelievable. But the personality, the bodybuilding, smoothie drinking, you know, uh, charmer of housewives mm-hmm. <laughs> and non-housewives is exactly right. And the look that he actually embodies for this film, Hugh Jackman, is so on point with the actual superintendent. Toby, what did you think of Hugh Jackman's performance in this film? Yeah, I mean, it's really good. It, to, to a certain extent, I thought he was, uh, like, I kept thinking Steve Carell, mm. like, while I was watching the whole thing. Yeah, but he, he's, I mean, he's a really good actor. So I'm not I'm not surprised that he was good in this role. I don't know if you guys know this. Actually, I do know that you know this. I have some stuff to say. So, Kevin, will you ask me a question? Yeah. Does the stuff about competitive Long Island school districts track with reality? You can ask me. Because I went to school mm-hmm. on Long Island, and I am very familiar with all of the school districts they talk about in this film. Go ahead, ask me the question. So, the thing you just said, is it true? <laughs> it's totally true. The competitiveness with which Long Island school districts view each other, especially in regard to real estate values, is a reality that even as a student, you are acutely aware of. And Roslyn, which is the school district, you know, it's sort of at the center of this scandal, was always, when I went to school in the late 80s and early 90s, always like one of the top tier districts and all the other districts they mentioned, Syosset, whatever, totally there. I did not go to a fancy school district in Long Island. But the other thing that you should know is, you know, they talk about sort of the pay of the administrators and teachers. Uh, being a teacher is a thankless, difficult job no matter where you work. But if you want to get actually paid like an okay living to be a teacher, like Long Island is the place to do it because of this very kind of competitive nature of districts. Toby, what did you think about how they talked about this in the film, which does reflect reality about the quality of education being more about the benefit to the community in terms of property values than the quality of the education for children? Well, I mean, I think it's reality playing as black humor because I think, I mean, what's what's interesting and I kind of feel like they don't quite dive into it as much as they could have. But it's like the kids' education, as you were just saying, it's it's sort of the real benefit of it is it makes the community desirable and brings up property values. And that's really what they're concerned about is, you know, it's not whether this person went to Columbia or this person went to Penn or Princeton or whatever. It's just getting those numbers in there so that they look good on paper so that real estate values go up and everybody makes money. Yeah. It's one of those funny things where it exists and it's freaking ridiculous and it's dark and it's kind of funny. 
And so it pretty easily translates to a dark comedy film. But I again, I kind of felt like they missed some opportunities uh, to make it a little bit darker. Because mm. <laughs> I think they kind of give the board, the school board a pass a little mm. bit mm-hmm. it, in the story in that Frank like kind of appeals to this when they first catch the woman uh, for, you know, embezzling, basically. And the pitch he gives them basically is we've all got a lot to lose here. Mm. And they go along with it based on on that like and his pitch is you know the ivy league schools aren't going to look at our kids quite the same way and that's going to fewer people are going to be accepted into ivy league schools perhaps because of this and they're like oh well yeah i guess we better be quiet but that's never really they're really never really seen as super complicit they kind of get played a little bit and then you know when frank finally gets exposed they're like okay well this is too much and they fire him. But I thought I thought they could have maybe done a little bit more with that dynamic than they did. I do think that was the least satisfying part of the film, especially if you read Bob Colker's article, which I did right after we watched it. And Kevin, can you put a link to that in our show notes and on our website so people can read it? There is this more protracted situation with Frank and the school board and then with Frank and the public at a series of public meetings where parents start showing up and asking like really hard questions and they don't play it in the film, but there's this one incredible moment that Kolker reports on in his story where like a couple of mothers are asking him hard questions. And he says something like, what, like you ladies are what you, you're like lawyers or something. Come on. Huh. And, if, and they all yeah. were. They were actually lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, community, was, right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Laura, what are you going to say? I read that article because after I watched this, I was so fascinated by this. I went and read that article and I love that part. And also it had some more information like the timeline I didn't realize that there was actually like it was like 2002 when the woman was let go and it wasn't until like 2004 yeah. that they caught up with Frank. Yeah. But then like towards the end he was taking and this was hinted at a little bit but we didn't get the full really like picture of it like these trips like he was obviously he had his like love shack out in Vegas and then he was uh, at one point they wanted him to come back for a school board meeting and he was like down in like Palm Beach or something. Yeah. Um and the other so, thing I want to talk about is that the other missing millions, because they were able to account for like some like some amount of millions, like eight million. But there's actually like many more millions that they these people embezzled so like much money. They yeah. embezzled so much money. Kevin, can you imagine embezzling so much money that you can buy a vacation home in the Hamptons <laughs> and and drive? What does she have like a, a Jaguar or something like that? Yeah, something sweet. And Doing you're like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just a tremendous amount of money to embezzle and in real life as in the film one of the first people to ask real questions about it was a child what do you think of rachel the student journalist and her role in the film well i do want to talk about rachel but to piggyback on one of toby's points yeah the school board and the parents are not complicit but they are complacent Mm. And that's the problem because the schools are delivering the thing that they think that they want from them. So they don't bother. Their kids getting into Ivy League colleges. Yes, and their property value is going up. It's just like the Lori Laughlin school, but college so they're fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so let's hear it for the student journalist. <laughs> uh, Rachel Diggs. So, that, you know, as soon as they have the scene in the beginning where Rachel goes and talks with Frank at the inner, you know, part of this interview, and Frank's, you know, is pushing her out, dig deeper. You know, there's always, 
you always can do better. You immediately know that's going to come back to bite him in the ass in Mm. the end, right? But my question is, is it a form of self-sabotage? Like, does he, on some level, is he daring her to find out about, you know, the finances, like on some other level? I think it speaks to his complexity as a character. Yeah. Because I think that, I mean, and this is apparently true to life. He is a person who his career was in education and he also had all this like vanity and like, you know, weird narcissism stuff. Yeah. But he also does relish, you know, seeing excellence in children. He sort of has this like complicated relationship with education where. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's summed up really great towards the end. He has this scene with a with a parent and he has this uh, this little soliloquy. You know, about the value of teachers. And, you know, certainly that I thought that that was a really great scene, um, you know, reminding, also shaming the parents a little bit for their role in this. All they, they don't care about the kids and they just want the teachers to do things for them as opposed to the teachers. And at some point, on some level, Frank too, because he was a classroom teacher and he seems to feel this despite his other issues is that there's a, a value and a nobility being a teacher and loving those students and nurturing them hmm. that we that the rest of us overlook but isn't sort of unless like- you're homeschool you know you're now you're homeschooling your own kid in front yeah. of a zoom computer uh maybe you're starting to get it but isn't there some like um i mean you can see how and this is no knock on real life teachers if you're a teacher listening, listening to this i am not talking about you but you can see how sort of like a real like narcissist somebody who really like is in it for glory like being a beloved teacher and having that power because really, like, if you are a teacher at the high school level and you're beloved and you then rise in administration, you have a lot of power to influence the lives of kids and how that mm-hmm. would sort of be like, that would that could feel like great to a narcissist. I don't know, Laura, what do you think about the complexity of this character, Frank? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that struck me about him as I, you know, in the beginning, the way they set it up, you know, you're feeling like... He's definitely very private about his personal life, and you start to wonder what's going on there. But when his business manager is first caught, you're thinking, you know, he's in it for the right reasons. And he seems like, you know, he's there for the kids, and he's there for the district, and he's, like, super professional. And then as soon as he goes on that trip to Las Vegas and gets involved with the former student, like, that veneer starts to crack, and you're like... There is something else going on with this guy. And then it just goes downhill from there. But even throughout all that, you do feel like, I I mean, I felt conflicted because I felt like, you know, he's portrayed as the villain and he is. But at the same time, I think that he did get into teaching for the right reason. But that's been lost the more he was able to sort of create this persona because of the extra income that he was getting from his job. And it was like, it just morphed into just this awful, grotesque version of of where he started. I mean, the scene where he was like putting like the nutmeg on his eyes, I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) What? No, 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 no. Kevin thinks the vanity is a symbol of his deception, hiding the wrinkles, getting the plastic surgery. It's all lie, right? That's your like... Yeah, I think it's symbolic of part of his own character, right? That you're hiding something from the rest of the world by covering up and by priming and preening. And and, and I'm speaking about not real people, but I'm speaking as a, you know, as a a narrative device. That can also mean something, you know, living a double life. Yeah. It's also indicative of here's a character who is deceptive. 
And, I mean, there's also reasons for that maybe too, which are more complex too. Well, I'm thinking in real life, yeah. you know, you think of the time mm-hmm. um, where he was closeted. That wasn't uncommon. But he's also cheating on his partner with but he, Right, but that's the part. <laughs> right, it, it, right. It's He's having an aff- cross-country affair, yeah. which also plays into, okay, he's also deceptive. Yeah. And it just, it, 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 it stitches a lot of things together. Student journalist, Laura. You want to talk about the student journalist? Oh, I love the student journalist. I love the fact that when she starts, she's just like, oh, this is so boring, whatever. Just give me the quote. Puff piece. Yeah, puff piece. I'm like, I have done that many times. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I love when she's down in the basement digging through the files and then it sort of, you know, starts to take on a life of its own. And we've had, you know, obviously Allison Janney's character has been busted, but she's still in the office when she comes back. And there's that great scene where she's just like, um, it's public record. And she's like, fine, whatever, you know. And she just kind of like tells her, you're not going to find anything or whatever. And and I just loved that she persevered. And I did look that up because I was like, oh, I really hope this happened in real life. And it did. I know. It did. That, and I was like, oh, my God, that student. So that goes to show the school obviously did have students who were high achieving if you had a like <laughs> high school student who was able to expose the scandal. But it was great when I loved like, just tracking down those businesses that didn't exist or, mm. um, you know, when her father ended up calling the um, – consulting firm, which was actually the car dealership of uh, the business manager's husband. Pam's, that was a Pam's great husband, yes. Yeah. And the father was had been obviously fired for potential yes. insider training or whatever. So he's able to use his skills. Yep. Toby, we actually do have a, um, a former teacher on this panel in Toby Ball. We know that, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Former high school teacher. Toby? Yes. How much money did you embezzle from your, your school district during your education uh, career? As much as I possibly could. <laughs> Ever run into any of your former students? That's how he bar? has that lake house. Yeah. <laughs> not a whole lot of embezzling, not a whole lot of running into former students because I didn't, I only taught for a year. But my, you know, my mom was a career English teacher and my dad taught social studies and then became an administrator for a while. Yeah. So I'm familiar with the lifestyle. Although I don't think my parents embezzled very much. I don't think they did either. Or at least if they did, they, they hit it very successfully. Yes. They spent it on your sister. That's right. You. That's right. <laughs> and hers and her sabbatical to Africa or wherever she went, her study abroad. <laughs> Deep cuts. <laughs> You know, again, I I kind of felt like one of the things that didn't really get probably the due that it should have is in the end, you know, not with the embezzling, but with all the other stuff. I mean, Frank was just doing what his bosses, which is basically the public uh, through the school board, wanted him to do. Right. What stealing? They wanted him to steal. No, I I, I mean, besides (laughs) that. But I think but I think what's more. Like where the where the kind of dark humor in the whole thing comes from is sort of the absurdity of the whole setup, which is using kids as like a social indicator of the quality of your town, right? Using their success. And then when they want to get pushed from number four to number one, the whole thing is like to have a sky bridge. Mm. It was so weird. And <laughs> no, it's yeah, so, you know, and you could, but it's so exactly <laughs> right. I'm not I'm telling you. It is so exactly, exactly what a high school would do to try to be fancy. Right, Toby? We 100% had a, uh, I don't think we called it a sky bridge, but we did have two buildings in our school and there was a second floor like hallway between the two buildings that you could go through. So it was like a sky bridge. (laughs) No, it was kind of a no frills sky bridge. Mm. To me, even the the embezzling thing was kind of almost an excuse to take a look at sort of these the the social situation in which all this stuff kind of takes place. 
And one of the ways you get to embezzle that amount of money without people really noticing is because you are in a super, super rich school district, mm. which has is so well funded that you can get rich without people noticing by embezzling from it. That was not the case at either of the school districts I had anything to do with yeah. in New Hampshire. Yeah. I can tell you that. So anyway, I you know, I, I just kind of felt like there was a little bit of a lost opportunity to like kind of make a little bit more of a statement about just sort of the weirdness of that whole situation. Because hmm. um, I felt like the whole, the feel of it would kind of lend itself to that because, it, you know, it is, there's, there's definitely funny parts and it's definitely not played as tragedy, but for whatever reason, I guess they didn't think that was quite as key as some of this other stuff. And then, you know, like the, the uh, journalist's dad, like that was just another opportunity to like kind of talk about that time and sort of the the values that were going on with him getting caught from insider trading. But instead, it's kind of a like, well, this is the lesson I learned. And then she kind of takes that to heart and goes ahead with the story. Yeah. Like that, that's the extent of what that means in, in, the, in the script. I do want to talk a little bit about Allison Janney, one of my favorite actresses working today and her performance in this movie. They're taking my license. Mom, what did you do? I took money from them. Yeah. I stole. We all did. Okay, look, just go back to your rooms, yeah. please. Let me talk to your mother. Your car, just... your clothes, this house, the other houses. What are you talking well, about? You didn't want state school. You wanted private college. I wanted you to be happy with me. Kevin, what do you think about Alice and Jenny's Pam and her son, the kid from American Vandal, and her husband, the sad car dealer, and her house in the Hamptons, and her niece who she gave a job to, the chick from... Um, Masters of Sex. The woman from Masters of Sex, yes, who's just wonderful. What do you think of Pam and her role in this whole thing? Is her accent accurate? It was fine. It's very difficult to do a Long Island accent. It really is. There's just one secret to it. And it's just for some reason, I don't know why um, accent dialect coaches don't like just impart this one thing. Yeah. The key to doing the best Long Island accent is just to pretend like your jaw has no muscles. And you've just been injected with like horse tranquilizer. Uh-huh, like and it that? just no, it just oh. goes super lazy. But there are sort of there is sort of like an active version of Long Island accent and Alice and Jane did it fine. But she's just an electric actress, is she not, Kevin? She is, but I want to hear more of you <laughs> talking in that accent. <laughs> it's like butter. Yeah. Laura, what did you think of uh, Alice and Janie's character, Pam, and sort of like her role as like the shameless embezzler sending her son out to buy supplies to do the renovation for her Hamptons house? He was a moron. Um, <laughs> I'm cast sorry. perfectly, by the way. I Who love drew that the guy. dicks? Love that guy. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I loved her character, but I will say I felt like her accent, and I said, I, I actually wrote in my notes, like, I'll defer to Rebecca because the accent, I felt like it was like overdone almost. Like, it was like when oh, we no. listened it to wasn't some overdone. of the- Okay. Some of the things where we've listened to and we've heard a Boston accent done wrong, or we did that podcast one time that was supposed to be Northern New Hampshire and they used down Maine accents. And I was like, is this one of those situations? Blackout felt like science fiction. Oh my God. We're living blackout right now. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah, I loved her character. Um, I just, I thought she, she's wonderful. I love her in anything that she's in. And, uh, but it was definitely, uh, you know, she wasn't going down without a fight. And um, her niece, though, who's like, well, I got you a, a little Christmas present while I was at it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> man. 
But that was another scene with the niece and Frank where, again, you see Frank's true colors where Mm. he's like, she comes in and she's like, I know what you did or whatever. And he's like, see, I can't do a Long Island accent. I don't have horse tranquilizers. But um, (laughs) (laughs) One horse thing you Uh, don't have, apparently. (laughs) Apparently not. Um, But where Frank is like, oh, is that uh, Lord and Taylor or Macy's or whatever? Exactly. I was like, oh. He is wise to what's going on. He is not all he's cracked. But, you know, in the beginning, you're thinking like, oh, boy, he's got a shitty situation he's got to deal with. I feel bad for him. And then you're like, yeah. apartment in Park Avenue, for God's sakes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Bad Education? It's a new film from HBO looking at the Rosalind Long Island School District embezzlement scandal. And it's kind of fun. Laura Bricker, what do you say? Thumbs up or thumbs down for you for Bad Education? Uh, This is an enthusiastic thumbs up this time. Um, I loved this. This was a really fun watch. I love stories. And and I talked about this before where we have people leading double lives, secret lives. They're exposed. Nobody could believe that this person could have been doing this all this time. And that is the sort of story that this is. Uh, It's got such a great cast of people in it. We've got Ray Romano, who we didn't even talk about. Oh, I know. He's having a Um, moment, Ray. He's in everything. I know. And and so it's got Everybody a great Everybody does cast. love Raymond. Yeah. <laughs> Except when he's on the school board. So I would say absolutely. It's it's an hour and a half. It's well done. Interesting story. Very captivating. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Bad Education on HBO? I give it a thumbs up. I think I've said my piece about what I thought they kind of could have done and sort of missed out on opportunities for. But uh you know, it's it it's funny, you know, given sort of how downbeat a lot of the stuff we review is, like this is one that's if you can't deal with like sort of another troubling true crime thing, you can watch this and get a few laughs. It's pretty light despite sort of the ultimate Frank's ultimate fate. What about you, Kevin? Thumbs up or thumbs down for bad education? I'm a thumbs up. I think there's some really great performances all the way through this. I haven't read a lot of the background material, so I don't know how far away it journeys from, you know, real life instances, but I thought it was thoroughly entertaining. I'm not quite rooting against Frank, but I'm not really rooting with him either. Yeah. And I think that's a great sign. And I love the last scene. I wish we could have talked about it more in the spoiler section. But uh, again, I I think that it, it does a good job of blending true life, character development, and maybe some deeper uh, symbolism to tie the two together. Yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up, too. You know, it's not super heavy, but you know what it reminds me a lot of, Kevin? It what? reminds me of the film To Die For's treatment of the Pam Smart case. Mm-hmm. It takes slices of the real-life story and chooses to project those and make them the main story. Mm-hmm. You know, To Die For, uh, starring Nicole Kidman, of course, just sort of looked at, like... Um, the sort of fluffy, superficial aspects of Pam Smart and the way she like manipulated the kids. And it didn't really get into some of the deeper aspects of the criminal conspiracy and the way that the trial may have been mishandled and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And to me, bad education is sort of a to-die-for treatment of the Rosalind School scandal. And if you choose to sort of just take it at face value, the performances, the writing, uh, the delivery, and also the interpretation of the Kolker article, which I think is a must-read uh, if you watch this movie and like it, Please check out the Bob Kolker article. It's thumbs up for me. I really like the whole thing as a package. Moving on. People in the crime lab saying the tire prints match, the shoe prints match, the hair matches, the bite marks match. Because of these unreliable methods, innocent people are going to prison. 
Netflix is out with an ambitious nine-part series looking at wrongful convictions. The Innocence Files employs three different director-creators to examine cases and issues where justice was misapplied. It was produced in conjunction with The Innocence Project, and the first three episodes, directed by documentarian Roger Ross Williams, start with a pair of rape homicides of small children in Mississippi. She was about 10 feet out there. She actually would find partial clothes, face down, and then the water was down a little bit more, too. Though the crimes are strikingly similar, authorities convict different men for the deeds. At issue is the accuracy of bite mark evidence and whether it's reliable forensic science. This case and many others revolves around an arrogant dentist whose application of the skill has led to wrongful convictions. I'm not going to say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. I'm here to help advance the question, did this man do this act, yes or no? So if that makes me controversial, suck it up, buttercup. The first three episodes of The Innocence Files make up one of three sections this week, but we're going to talk about the rest of the documentary next week. To remain spoiler-free for the first three episodes, however, just look at the time code in our show notes for our Thumbs Up or Thumbs Down review. Lara Bricker, there's one thing about the initial investigation of the first crime in this documentary that sticks out to me in a big way. And his name is Uncle Bunky. Did he have any anything on his face, like mustache or whiskers? He had a Halloween thing on his face. Okay. Now tell me something. Tell, you said he had a Halloween thing on his face? Uh-huh. Was it a stocking or a Halloween thing? Stocking. <laughs> what the fuck? Seriously? <laughs> what do you think of a police department that is using a television host who draws pictures of animals to also interview children who have potentially been victims of sex crimes. What do you think of that practice and procedure, Laura Bricker? Um, I'm going to say if you had been in my house when I was watching this and I was like, wait, what? And there was some expletives that came out of my mouth. And I'm working on my expletives now because I realized I swear too much as this pandemic goes on. But I was like, literally, I'm, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? There is literally somebody called Uncle Bunky who draws animals that are deformed for children. And now he <laughs> is the person that they are using to interview children. I, what? Wait, what? Is this for real? Like, uh, and, I, and I, we have our listeners in Mississippi and I have gone to their yoga classes in Mississippi. And I know all of Mississippi is not like this, but this is like ridiculous like yeah i mean if he was like uncle george i don't know that probably wouldn't have made it better but uncle bunky like what (laughs) is this nonsense and then uncle bunky corrects the girl as the questioning goes on yeah oh no no and and of course her story is getting more elaborate because this is uncle bunky the tv star interviewing her so now all of a sudden like her story is getting but it's like child suggestibility 101 right here as you're watching this um there's a couple moments like that when i was watching this where there was a couple things that happened where I was like, are you, there was Uncle Bunky. There was a juror who was friends with the accused. Friends. His family used to own the accused's family, Lara Bricker. I don't know if I'd call them friends. The racial divide was was always there, always present. But, you know, and never thought a thing about it, you know. Just never thought about, you know, why is their house different than our house? You know, just, <laughs> you know, you, kids, you just accept what is. 
Oh, I think I missed that part. But his family were sharecroppers they, on his on the jurors' family's oh, plantation. Remember? I, I missed I missed that part of the relationship. I knew that they <laughs> <laughs> that was Sorry. important. But they were friends as kids because yeah. when you're white, you don't notice differences. Like my black friend lives in a shack, and I was watching that part, yeah. and I was like, I a hundred percent guarantee you, the black people did notice the difference in your <laughs> living situations. That's Mr. okay, Rebecca Foreman. It's all good. Because that was the other part that like tipped me over here. The guy's last name, the prosecutor, was all good. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's okay. All it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Uncle Bunky, it's, it's all, all good. good. Now, Toby, we should point out that if our listeners are familiar with the name Dr. Michael West, there are some good reasons why. Do you want to just orient the listeners to this podcast to how they may have heard about the work of the very talented forensic odontist Michael West? prior to watching The Innocence Files? Uh, well, as we sort of teased earlier, he and the corner uh, were the subjects of The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, which was by uh, Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington that we uh, talked about, Kevin and I and uh, Bill Rankin talked about on the deep dive probably over a year ago. And the book is incredible. And it actually really fo- it focuses on those two cases, mm. which was a little weird watching this because it tracks so closely to the book. You're talking about the LeVon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer cases, right? Correct. It tracks so closely to the book, but it doesn't have, it doesn't talk to either Radley Balco or Tucker Carrington in it. And I don't want to compare the two, but one thing the book did do is give a little bit more of the societal context in which all this stuff kind of went down, which is that the state coroner's office in Mississippi and sort of their death investigation apparatus was for decades and decades basically there to support white supremacy. Yeah. And to help white people who murdered African-American people get off. So that piece doesn't necessarily play directly into this case other than I think it shows like a complete disregard for the actual lives of the people who he's sort of doing this ridiculous junk science about and just like let's just put these guys away but i i felt like the book was really and my understanding of the whole thing was enriched a little bit by the historical context so that you know you know the system in which dr west was operating and why he was kind of given the leeway that he he was to just be like completely batshit crazy on the stand again and again and again. Yeah. And in real life, in person in 2020. Now, Kevin, I should I should disclose I did interview all the three directors who sort of oversaw the three chapters of this mm-hmm. documentary for the Netflix podcast. You can't make this up. And mm-hmm. Roger Ross Williams, who interviewed who directed these three episodes, was one of them. And he told me it was very important to him to illustrate that the culture of slavery is still alive and well and thriving in the Deep South. And he really wanted to show that Parchment Prison was and is a plantation that, you know, poor black people in these communities are still living in the equivalent of like that you plantation could get housing. whipped yep. up until 1971. Yep. Jeez. Up until a few years ago, inmates of Parchment Prison were picking cotton in the fields of Parchment Prison. It's really incredible. Really? Wow. I don't By know. Way, I guess, but we need to talk, know, we need to talk yeah. about the access that Williams has here in this documentary to Dr. Michael West and the free with which this guy, this charlatan 
who legitimately is making evidence by taking teeth impressions and pressing them into skin to create bite marks, the willingness he has and the hubris he has around his, quote, science. What do you think of Dr. Michael West as an interviewee in this documentary? The actual fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out whether like he's he's so arrogant, and I'm trying to figure out was he born that way, or is this is a result? Maybelline? No, is this a result of him being questioned so thoroughly that the only way to keep from being discredited is to attack back and to be absolutely defiant about? No, no, no all my stuff is perfect. Kevin, uh, there was DNA showing that LaVon Brooks didn't do the crime. Yeah. And his response is, no, he was definitely involved. He did it. He bit her. He may not have raped her and killed her, but he bit her. Yeah. That was his response. Yeah. After the Innocence Project was able to thing. show that it was like crawfish that created right. those bites. Yeah. He bit her just with the top of his teeth, not the bottom. And someone came forward to confess. Yes. Afterwards. And somebody yeah. else literally confessed to committing the crime. You know, I think when I first like was watching, like my anger grew towards him, like as this continued. Go to the morgue every weekend, spend it with 15 or 20 dead babies, come out of there without being a fruitcake. And like, and so I'd see little things and I'd be like, God, this guy's kind of an asshole. And like, he was drinking during his documentary. Well, that's what I was like. If that was the first thing, I'm like, I'm like, I think he has like a glass of like bourbon or whiskey sitting next to him. And I was like, well, that's kind of a bold move. And I was like, well, you know, hey, good for him. And then things continue. And then he said something. He could have put on a clean shirt too. Yeah. He's just, and he's just like, the whole time. And I'm like, shut up. But then he, he was so crass when he said well you've seen one dead girl with bite marks you've seen them all i was like you're an asshole but i think then it just continued he got like just he was so emboldened and he was just so narcissistic as it continued that by the scene where he was sitting on the freaking toilet in the shitty ass bar (laughs) and he told everyone to shut up because i'm doing some stuff here i was like oh my god God, this guy. I had to go to Columbus, Mississippi for a post-conviction hearing. Can we turn that shit down for just a minute? Thank you very much. And then I'm like, and then we'd have like these filming shots of him in his office with this can of WD-40 next to him. And I'm like. His Confederate flag. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God. So I just, I, you know, he was a good villain. But it was like, I think he had no, I mean, I think, I know, he just had no situational awareness or cares in the world about how he was perceived because in his mind, he was right. And when he started railing against the Innocence Project and how one of them, I can't remember which one he said, came up and tried to shake his hand and he was like, wasn't going to do that. I was just like, oh, man. Um, go drink your Miller High Life. Ugh. <laughs> Toby, I just want to ask you a little bit about like the junk science of bite mark evidence. Now, it has been discredited even by government reports, as we learned in this documentary, we've heard many times before, as uh, a junk science. And there's an amazing sequence in this documentary where the former head of the Odontological Association is like, I'm going to defend my science and send out a survey to all of the forensic odontologists. And they're evenly divided into thirds in their responses, which makes him switch sides. This is the former head of this whole thing. Well, he says it sort of at the end, and it's the important points. If yeah. they all can't agree on what a bite is, yes, exactly. then 
uh, you know, then you have to wor- wonder to about, is this a science? I don't think there's a single case where everybody agrees it is a bite mark. That's where we get into trouble. But Toby, isn't bite mark evidence the way it's described to us? And anything that involves elimination, like where you're like just looking at something and you're like, I can say with a reasonable certitude or whatever they say that it could or couldn't be. Isn't it all just designed to promote confirmation bias? Something like bite mark evidence, like all of these junk sciences, right? Yeah. To me, it's crazy. Like the thing that got me in sort of a Laura, Laura Bricker rage was... Uh, yes, you got in a rage. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> was when, uh, you know, Virginia doesn't pass that law, you know, outlawing that kind of forensic evidence. That's the Keith Harwood case at the end, right? Right. Despite the fact that the National Academy of Sciences has called it out for being junk science, the fact that, as you just talked about, the former head of the you know association, and I also believe it's the licensing agency for forensic odontologists, also has sort of concluded that it's junk science. But then, where it really plays out, and they they talk a little bit about this in the uh, in the context of one of the trials, is that you end up having two quote unquote experts, one testifying for the prosecution, one for the defense. And it's just up for the jurors without any kind of direction to kind of try and figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. And this juror was like, oh, well, you know, Dr. West seemed a lot more confident in himself than, you know, the guy who they came in to rebut him. It's like, well, yeah, because the guy who rebut him is a fucking scientist. And yeah. like responsible scientists. They're not sexy. They, yeah, yeah, they tend to couch their stuff. Uh, they, they don't make bold proclamations for the most part. So if you got one guy who's absolutely confident and the other guy's talking about, you know, you can't be confident, you know, people will instinctively, I think, go for the guy who seems more confident. To me, it kind of comes down to it's sort of a lack of respect for actual science in the judicial system and in our state governments. Because I think they said it was you could still use bite mark evidence in all 50 states. Isn't that what they said at the end? Yep. So like in freaking New Hampshire, like you can go to trial and they can be like, yeah, your, your bite matches up with this you know, freaking trout eaten body (laughs) and uh, you could be screwed. You know, I I kind of felt like that was, they kind of gets hinted at, but you know, he doesn't go too deep and maybe that's just kind of not, not the point that he's trying to make with the documentary. But that's what that had me thinking about is it's hard to adjudicate what's good and bad science during a trial, during a criminal trial. Right. And yet that's, that's what happens. Um, And I think particularly in places where, you know, juries are, are more inclined to convict. Uh, I think it's, it's just it's a, it's a powerful and unfair weapon. And where juries are racist, Toby, and where juries are racist, as we have right. discussed many times on this podcast. And don't add me, people. Like, juries in Mississippi are racist by mm-hmm. design. Yeah. Prosecutors pick them and are allowed to pick them by design to be racist. In the LaVon Brooks case... There is a guy who is the jury foreman whose family used to own LeVon Brooks's family. We think they would swing his way, though, right? You would think he would be excluded. The first question you get asked in jury duty is, do you know the defendant or any of the witnesses? And if the answer is yes, you are excluded from that jury pool in any reasonable jurisdiction. 
not in this community in Mississippi. It's 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 fixed by design and make no bones about it. It's not one bad apple. It is a system that is fixed toward white supremacy and racism. Who is the journal? Was it a journalist at the beginning? Who's like, well, you know, I don't think anymore. Yes, I don't think there's that really was a, problem a with- journalist. I was like, what? <laughs> it's like. Wait, have you listened to In the Dark season two? <laughs> yeah. He was a journalist and a pastor, though, Toby. That was a different one. Different guy. Oh. No, that's a different one. It was a white, it was a white guy with a, with a like, oh. beard. <laughs> yeah, I certainly like the idea that you could go from being a TV reporter, be a pastor on the weekend. That's right. I think that's what Sean McDonald's I love that guy, is. actually. <laughs> yeah, that guy, was, that guy was cool. I liked him. So there were, there were the, the experts who had been around for many, many years. The Ted Bundy guy? Yeah. And I think that they developed- at least it demonstrated at some point a bit of humility yeah. about it. Uh, he went back and changed his testimony from the thing he did in the 80s and explained, I've been doing this for 35 years now. Yeah, and they so, shouldn't have convicted the guy just on what I said. Well, but also he <laughs> he likes to think that he's gotten better, but that includes understanding the limits, which is why sometimes he testifies for the defense. But I've gotten to the point where any of these that's this pattern evidence that I can I can be comfortable with it being exclusionary. Yeah. So you could say if you know the rape victim got bit and you look at the pattern and you're like here's your suspect you're like eh, I don't have that many teeth. It's like okay, well then then you're excluded. But to say mm, no, this is the guy because he matches can't be excluded. Yeah. You can't. Yes. And sometimes that's the only thing that gets, you know, that puts them in jail is, you know, that piece of evidence. I'm not comfortable with that. DNA might be great at telling you my height and my hair color and things like that. But then if you're going to say, oh, yeah, this DNA also shows you had a great sense of humor. Like you can't get that from DNA. Yeah. You get a lot of things from DNA. You can get things from patterns, whether it's ballistics, whether it's fingerprints. You can get things, but you can't overstate well, you know, the extent mean. of what it is yeah. or how close the pattern is. And I, and I think we've seen this a couple of times now where the lab people are supposed to be impartial, mm. but they act more like an, an arm of the law enforcement yeah. community. they're an agent of the state. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting that I just want to bring up briefly, we don't have to get too much into it, the Keith Harwood case, which is the third episode. We have the rape victim. That interview was incredibly powerful. And Keith Harwood is an incredibly interesting character. But if you just look at the way the system has sort of treated Keith Harwood after his release versus the way these two black defendants in Mississippi were treated after their release, LaVon Brooks, obviously, they got very little restitution, $50,000 for 10 years, which sounds like a lot, but it's not a lot when you're otherwise completely unemployable and you've not worked enough years to have Social Security or any other safety net. LaVon Brooks obviously died of cancer. Mm-hmm. Kennedy Brewer is is like barely employable. And then you have Keith Harwood. I they got anything yeah. in Mississippi. And then you have yeah. Keith Harwood in Virginia who, you know, got a decent settlement, made some smart choices and bought a really nice RV and a lawnmower. You can break that out over 30 years, though. Right. It's, 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 it's still also, not. It's also not yeah. great, but it just kind of shows you sort of the inequities of like the regional distribution of of. of you know, sort of the wrongdoing in New Hampshire, by the way, the cap on restitution for wrongful conviction is 20 grand, period. Hmm. That's the law in New Hampshire. Fun fact. But, you know, Keith Harwood does have the opportunity, I think, in, in no small part because he's white 
to sort of go around the country and testify in front of legislators and get a standing ovation and all this stuff. And he's trying to make change. And even he, with all of these advantages, relative advantages, of course, he's not advantaged, but relative advantages, being white, getting the lump sum restitution, still can't make a fucking dent in changing these laws. It's like... It's bananas. Laura, but there was a part of you I know, because I know, I know you, yeah. who wants to ride shotgun with Keith Harwood in that RV. Am I right or wrong, Laura Bricker? You are so right, Rebecca. I mean, <laughs> like, that is like, I mean, we're trapped. We can't go anywhere. He's your type. Let's be real. He's your type. He's <laughs> totally, like, especially when he trimmed up his beard and his mustache. I was like, oh, he's looking. Anyway, but I loved, I was like, I loved how he was like driving around. And, and what was the nickname for his van? I'm having a brain cramp. Blue Tater. Blue Tater. <laughs> I just, but I loved it. I was like, that's great. That is what I need. I need a platform like that to go around the country and spread the word about the junk science. I was like, good for him. What did they say? What was that quote? Nonsense being spewed as scientific reality. I liked that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, no, that was good for him. I liked how he gave the tour too. I was like, and here's my lawnmower. <laughs> yeah, I just bought the things that matter, you know? All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out part one of The Innocence Files on Netflix? This is the first three episodes of The Innocence Files. The title of the first three episodes, Kevin, is, I believe, The Evidence, correct? Mm -hmm. This is the section directed by Roger Ross Williams. And if you want to hear more from Roger, please check out the Netflix podcast, You Can't Make This Up, in which I interview him. It has not changed my review of this. I make that pledge to you. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Should our listeners check out the first three episodes of The Innocence Files? on Netflix. Absolutely. Um, You know, we didn't even talk about like my love of the Innocence Project and the attorneys that are part of that project. Your future husbands? I love them. They, <laughs> my future sugar daddies. Look at them; they're all like over seventy. I'm like, that's like my perfect <laughs> man right there. Silver foxes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this, I thought this was just. It was a really good look at not only what the Innocence Project does, but also you know looking at certain types of you know bite mark evidence, DNA evidence, uh, certain things that you know we know from watching all the shows that we've watched and and doing the type of work that we do are not um, really credible ways to convict somebody or tie somebody to a crime. And this does a really good job, you know, using cases where, you know, this, this, uh, you know, uh, was the case and, and showing the aftermath of that. And it was just, it was rage inducing. And it's good to have some rage for something other than like being stuck in your house and things like that. And actually looking at some things that are, you know, something it was just really well done. Toyobo, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for part one of The Innocence Files on Netflix. It's called The Evidence. Yeah, I I give it a thumbs up. I I sort of feel like there's almost a certain sameness to the look and feel of these like high quality true crime documentaries these days. Um, And I kind of had the same feeling with this is that it just seemed like it had the same tempo, the same basic look. But, you know, the story and theme are, are, are different. I don't know what that makes me really think about other than it'd be nice to see something, somebody play with the form a little bit because I, I, I sort of feel like the template's there and people are just put, finding good stories to put into the template and, and doing it well. But, you know, this this is about stuff that I'm interested in and feel pretty strongly about. And it's it's told it's told very efficiently and the fact that they get a Dr. West... Dr. To be West. his <laughs> full-on shitty self on camera, unrepentantly, uh, is quite something. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thumbs up. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I am also a thumbs up. 
Um, this is the latest in Netflix's offerings like Exhibit A and How to Fix a Drug Scandal that make us look at the science involved in law enforcement and that science shouldn't be open to interpretation, otherwise it's not science. Uh, the CSI effect used to be something that we talk about with prosecutors, how they were sort of disadvantaged because juries always wanted to see the DNA. And they wanted to see the science. Or else the they story. Else they wouldn't convict. But I also see that the CSI effect has is the problem now for, for um, defendants because when there is forensic evidence, it's presented as being infallible, even in those cases when it is misapplied or even if that science is junk. And so it, it certainly these are good stories and cautionary tales and reasons why we have to be vigilant about changes in the criminal justice system that ensure that justice is properly served. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give the first three episodes of The Innocence File a thumbs up as well. One thing that we didn't get a lot into in our review that I just want to point out is some of the filmmaking craft here. Some of the on-camera interviews here, Dr. West's are extraordinary, but some of the other on-camera interviews are also pretty extraordinary in this these three episodes, of course, we have Teresa, the victim, in episode three. We have the sister of one of the victims in episode one. We have, you know, family members. We have um, the jury foreman in the LaVon Brooks case who, whatever you think of the system that allowed him to become the jury foreman, it is extraordinary that he's sort of, uh, as the jury foreman, like exposing himself this way on camera. Really, it's it's a kind of a beautifully crafted three-episode series. I know it's, if you've read uh, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, it's hard not to make the comparisons, but as a standalone piece, these three episodes directed by Roger Ross Williams I'm tip my hand. I think they're the strongest episodes of this series in the Innocence Files. I really, really like them. So big thumbs up for me. Beautiful to watch. Moving stories. Great characters. And, of course, that fucking dentist. <laughs> so thumbs up for me. And now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime. Crime of the week. Of the week. Since many of us have been working from home, it seems like every day is more than casual Friday. But sometimes being comfortable can be a little too comfortable. The mayor of a Maryland town is reminding people to wear pants when they go to the mailbox. <laughs> In an online post, Mayor Bradley Wants says, you know who you are. This is your final warning. <laughs> he told NPR, which is a bit of irritation, that with so much going on in the world, how are the 7,000 residents of Taneytown expected to remember to wear pants when they check their mail? Pantytown? Taneytown. He, Tan said, he said underwear is fine. Just keep all your jiggly bits in self-isolation. <gasps> I will say, I do like it that he's protecting the postal workers from sexual harassment here. I do like that. I like it very much. Well, no one goes to the mailbox when the mailman is there. Laura it's Bricker. the neighbors who are I run offended. outside when the mail person comes in my driveway because I'm so happy to see another person. Can Do they run I away? I have been walking my dog in a bathrobe for a month. <laughs> Laura Bricker, here's my question for you. Are you wearing pants when you go to the mailbox or do other activities? What do you think, Laura Bricker? I am wearing pants, but this reminds me of a funny story, Rebecca. Here we go. Um, you know, how, uh, no, this is good. I have a story for everything. Um, so, you know, you get like those little night shirts and in the beginning they're great. And then the more you wash them and wear them, they shrink or perhaps the um, sexier it gets. Well, a few years back before the pandemic, I had one that it was like I only wore like in a house and I didn't like go outside. And it was like this pink one with cherries on it. <laughs> And it got shorter and shorter. And I was like, I can't remember why I had to run outside one morning. And I ran out to our barn to get something. And all of a sudden I heard, hey, 
what's going on? And neighbor Dan was out like working in our barn and I was out there in this god awful cherry nightshirt. So mm. <laughs> I can totally understand why this was an issue that they needed to address because after that, this is why I wear pants now because of that situation, the trauma. Toby Ball. <laughs> working in the barn. Toby Ball, different question for you. Okay. What is the worst outfit you've worn during this pandemic? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what criteria are we using here? Anyone you want, Toby Ball. Uh, I do have a pair of orange Syracuse sweatpants mm-hmm. uh, that I wear quite a bit with with various slippers and novelty socks and fancy and, tops uh, for your video calls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not. I, it's not like I have a wild wardrobe to mm. wear something wild. <laughs> That's the best I can do. Big orange, Toby, right? Big orange. (laughs) (laughs) Orange boy. Kevin Flynn, I have a separate question for you. Yeah. Why did you decide to suddenly get dressed up today? You look amazing. Why, thank you. (laughs) Because all of my junk clothes are now in the hamper. (laughs) So I'm like, I don't have more jeans. All right, khakis, it is. Jeans is too fancy for this pandemic. I'm all about the yoga pants I bought when I had a broken leg. We should probably end on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, We've got some dogs for you, Rebecca. Yes, it is about freaking time. Tell me about these dogs, Laura. Well, so I had another dog picked out, which was like a rescue dog that was pregnant and they didn't know I was pregnant. And then I got a Twitter nomination from Anwi Kilgore. And it is a picture of two dogs dressed up in little outfits. There's a a boy dog that looks like got his little tie on with his hat. And then his date has a little dress and they have little date has little drinks as the other little dog. One has a beer. One has some champagne. And it says, my awesome brother-in-law started a Facebook group for our family called COVID-19 is a drag. So let's have a ball. Each day, we have a different drag category, and we have to do something. The category today was heavy petting, and I think our doggies, Mo and Savion, rocked it. Nice. Mm. Maybe we should have a little dress-up party every day. We could have Toby dress up for us. (laughs) Just Toby. Only if it's just Toby. It's the only way it's acceptable. I want Toby's cats to dress up. I want to see Toby in those orange sweatpants. Now, Lara Bricker, before we end the show, can you let our listeners know how they can find you on Twitter to submit their pets, preferably dogs, to be Cat of the Week? At Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and see a photo of you from the waist down. In your Syracuse loungewear. Ew. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, can I plug a couple of things first? Of course, Toby. It's entirely possible I have my weeks completely screwed up, in which case this all might not be true. But I think this coming Wednesday, I'll be on both The Blotter Presents mm. uh, for like the 850th time mm. and also on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Nice. Um, That's a fancy podcast, Toby. It's a very fancy. Those guys, those guys are really cool. I had a good time chatting with those guys for about an hour. Um, so you can catch me on both of those on Wednesday or any day after that because that's the way podcasts work and you can also <laughs> find me on Twitter at Toby Ball NH and Kevin Flynn if folks want to reach out to you how can they find you on Twitter 
I am just here at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Raiders On. And I encourage you very strenuously to join our incredible community on our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, a bonus episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, Married with Podcast, and the occasional invitation to video drinks with Kevin P. Flynn. Mm. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome and completely not objectified Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stan and fully rounded Meredith Plunkett. We love you, Meredith. She's pregnant. That's Just say that. She's, she's very well rounded. This show was People recorded in the yoga loft that. above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where all the bite marks are for reals. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Guys, be very quiet and good while I read this ad. Okay, can you do that? <laughs> Say, obviously they were. Okay. Turn your great idea. Starting now. <laughs> Oh, what a dick. Totally buying those Heather Cashmere sheets. You said I couldn't have podcast. This is how you like trap Kevin into things. Kevin, I'm having a baby. Yep. Just kidding. Oh, sweet. (laughs) That's wonderful news. When I find out who the father is, I'm going to kick the shit out of him. Wow. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.